Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Fien Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor of City Journal. I'm Aaron Sabarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. Aaron, how are you feeling today? For whatever reason, Charles, the past few days, my allergies have been really, really bad. I don't know if that's because of dust in my apartment. This is a or canonical. The weather's gotten warmer. Or if it's that I actually have a cold, but I'm pretty sure it's allergies. But but regardless, it's because the it's allergies because, are bad. It's because you do it sucks. It's because you do it. Uh, yes, that's the that's the root cause that's of it. The, yes, the root cause. Correct. Uh, Correct. Before, before we started recording, I was sharing or sharing with Aaron like horrifying facts about antihistamines, a topic on which I know too much because I am also allergy laden. He was he, I, you you right. I was I was discouraging you from taking Benadryl for sleep. I suspect some of our listeners do. It's a terrible idea. Yeah. You know, most people so, so, so Charles ahead. Charles, I mean I mean so so is there a scientific consensus on no. Benadryl? No. I mean so the, the thing that most people don't know is that I mean so diphenhydramine, which is generic Benadryl, is just like a multi-purpose drug. It's one of the it's one of the early generation antihistamines. You can still buy it over the counter. People take it to sleep. If you take Dramamine, Dramamine is just Benadryl. You can take it. I've been given IV Benadryl for like stomach, a stomach pain. You can do that. It's also one of the earliest antidepressant SSRIs. One of the reasons that we move away from Benadryl to modern antihistamines is that Benadryl crosses the blood brain barrier really aggressively. So if you, like me, took a lot of Benadryl in college, it may have harmed your your long-term ability to recall things. So I would discourage that. This is the science of the science of antihistamines. So it sounds like so from what you're telling me, Charles, it sounds like actually when people say, oh, Benadryl, you know, safe and effective, whatever, turns out that the science behind this is much more complicated. And we've all sort of imbibed this manufactured consensus about allergy medicine that's actually total bullshit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh, and if you, if you, you know, you can go find people who complain about taking dihydramine for sleep, right? But there's no long-term study. No, and this is actually apropos our topic today. Aaron, why don't you tell us about what we're think, what we're interested in this week? This week, we're going to talk about the COVID regime's constantly shifting recommendations, and in particular, its questionable predictive record, and how that's hastened the politicization of science and expert authority. You know, and and we're going to try to situate this conversation within the context of this much longer term replication crisis in science, where things that people thought were groundbreaking discoveries turned out to be bogus, they didn't replicate, and a lot of the methods that social scientists and even biological scientists employ turn out to be flawed in all sorts of ways. Charles, this is something I think that you have thought a lot about since you're more of a social scientist than I am. What, what's your take really on this a, broader really social science reporter? Well, but what's your take um, on this sort of broader yeah. crisis? No, I mean, and I, also how it's manifested in COVID. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're interested in is like, you know, it's a, it's a podcast with institutions. We're interested in the institution of science. And that means both the practice of science, scientific method, but also all the edifices that go along with that, the institutions that produce and reproduce research, the scientists who carry it out, who are trained and who train others and who communicate about science. That's sort of our focus today. And specifically, it's the crisis, the question that's been opened up by COVID, but also sort of the longer term structural problems it's facing. You know, I, for me, we, we've talked about the sort of the, the ways in which sort of modern ras- rational, quote unquote, government governance can often sort of be a mirage that, that the things that we claim are rational, the things that our leaders claim are rational, are irrational. They're about ritual practice belief. This pertains to the sort of notion of institutionalization, that we do lots of things for ritualistic purposes. So I'm, you know, in our in our conversation today, I'm interested in how science and at its intersection with governance has become institutionalized. What what are the predictable ways that science scientists in positions of authority behave irrationally, both as exemplified in the COVID crisis and also longer term? And what are the practices and norms to which they are deferring in doing so? What are the what are the structural features, in other words, of science that are moving us away from doing sort of the ideal rationalistic science and towards science is the weird political mess that it has become today? What are your I guess what are your what what's your take? Yeah. So so to me, one thing that's been interesting in, in the context of COVID that I that I think is revealing is to to look at COVID through the lens of the kind of 
age-old nature versus nurture debate. And, and I think you actually see this debate and the two sides of it kind of unfold implicitly in the discourse of a lot of epidemiologists, where they'll vacillate between, on the one hand, saying the pandemic is a product of human behavior, and if only you wore all your N95s and you stayed home, none of this would be happening. They'll vacillate between that and then treating the pandemic as this kind of unstoppable natural force where they emphasize the kind of intrinsic properties of this or that variant. They'll say it's 100 times as transmissible as the previous one or something like that. It evades antibodies. And, you know, there's no logical contradiction here, but I, I think there's a rhetorical one and it, and it points to a deeper, deeper debate that's worth having, which is if you think the pandemic is mostly about nature, you wouldn't really expect social interventions or nurture to do all that much. Whereas if you think it's mostly about nurture, it's like why worry about the more transmissible strains? We'll just still beat it with the lockdowns and everything we did last time that, of course, didn't actually work. So that's that's kind of the, my bigger picture philosophical framework that I, I think it, it it it's really the whole debate about COVID e efficacy and the efficacy of these interventions is really part of a broader debate that humanity has always had about nature versus nurture and how much can we really control nature. And I think that to the extent COVID has provided an answer to that question, it's it's provided one that's more in nature's favor, saying you know no, we actually just really like can't control this stuff. And scientists are sort of deluded for thinking that they can. But with that, Charles, do you yeah, want to bring in our that, guest? That, that gives us a lot to cover <laughs> from both sides. I think I think your guest is a good to, guy to cover it with. Aaron, you're the kind of guy who reads a lot, right? I do, Charles. So All when, the time. You're, when you're out and about online, where do you like to get your news? Where do you like to find essays to read? Well, you know, a lot of the old sources are are horrible, right? I can't read the New York Times anymore because they're terrible. I can't read the Washington Post. They're also terrible. The Atlantic's kind of declined. The New Republic, they're all bad. But one place I do read, Charles, is The Spectator magazine. You know, I, I also like to check out The Spectator, keep them in my rotation on a regular basis. And I think we actually, we have a uh, an offer for our listeners. Aaron, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about The Spectator for those who aren't quite in the know? Indeed. The Spectator is the longest running magazine in the world. It eschews identity politics in favor of intelligent conversation and thought. From the war in Ukraine to the ideological war in the classroom, from the rise of inflation to the rise of cancel culture, The Spectator has been dedicated to stimulating reporting and analysis since 1828. It may or may not have asked us to read that exact paragraph, but it's all true. The additional information that's worth noting is that they have a, they have a recent U.S. edition. So it's not just, you know, they, it's long, it's long running because it's British, but they also have, they, they have America focused variation as well. And it focuses not just on politics, so there's politics in there. It's also books, travel, food, wine, and much, much more. Do you want to, do you want to tell our listeners? We have a, we have a yeah. special offer for, for listeners of Institutionalized. Uh, if you sign up today, you'll receive three free months of the print magazine and full digital access. Plus they're going to send you a free spectator hat. Just go to spectatorworld.com slash special offer and use offer code THINK. In addition to free hats, which I love, and I'm going to follow up after this and make sure that they send me a free hat because I wear hats all the time. I mean, I think part of what I like about The Spectator is it's sort of more jovial character, right? Like, you know, it's 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 politics, but it's sort of that British, like, laughing at itself kind of politics and laughing at the ridiculousness of some of the, the things that they uh, they lampoon. Yeah, what I like about it is they have a really diverse staple of writers, right? So, it, it, you know... People would normally not think of Christopher Caldwell and Slavo Zizek as being in the same magazine, let alone the same, yeah, in Miles the same conceptual universe. But all of those names have been included in The Spectator. Yeah, I think they really try to get a diversity of opinions centered around, you know, the 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 atmosphere of The Spectator is is more like a cocktail party than a political party. It It, it works to the left, it works to the right. Uh, it's entertaining from cover to cover. So sign up today to get three free months of The Spectator, plus get your free Spectator hat when you subscribe today at spectatorworld.com slash special offer. Use offer code THINK at, at checkout to redeem your offer. That's spectatorworld.com slash special offer and offer code THINK. 
Uh, our guest today is Philippe Lemoyne, who earlier I said, how do I pronounce your name? And, you know, then proceeded to butcher it like an American. Philippe is a PhD candidate in philosophy at Cornell and a research fellow at the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology. He's written extensively on COVID over at CSPI, where he runs their, quote, war on science, unquote, blog. Philippe, thank you for joining us on Institutionalized. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's start with sort of an easy one. What would you say has been briefly the biggest failure of science in the past two years? Oh, man. This is easy question. Of, uh, yeah, I mean, there are plenty of possible choices here, many of which would be very good ones. I mean, you know, I, I'm not going to like give a specific example as, as an answer, you know, like I, I think the overall biggest failure has been the uh, inability to revise their or, you know, at least look back on the past performance of their methodology and admit that they were just not very good, which is not to say that there is a better replacement at hand, which I don't think there is actually. That's which is probably why they don't admit it, by the way. But, you know, there's been like, they've been used, using like a, a modeling framework, for instance, to make projections about the, the pandemic, which I think has repeatedly failed, not just a little bit, you know, that's, it has been a total failure. And, but there's never been like proper recognition of this fact among like official epidemiologists or, you know, I mean, some of them have, you know, tried to grapple with it a little bit, but on the whole, I'd say that there's been very little effort to do this. And so they keep using the same framework over and over again with the same abysmal results. And there's never a proper recognition of that. Like I said, I think there are many factors for this. I think one of them is that there is no, you know, there is no clear replacement for, for this framework. You know, like you, you can, so you know, I've written a lot about why mm -hmm. this framework has failed, for instance, but one of the upshots of, of those papers I've written is that it's really probably impossible to predict the course of the epidemic beyond the short term, you know, like maybe two weeks, because, you know, within two weeks, you know, any, the system has some inertia. So you can predict how it's going to go for about, you know, for about two weeks, just based on how it's going right now, because again, it has some inertia, but beyond that, you just have, you know, the upshot one of the upshots of some of the things I've written about this is that you can't really you can't really predict anything beyond this, but you know, those guys, their social usefulness and their influence in, in this crisis, mm. it depends on their maintaining the fiction that they can do this sort of thing. So, so, you know, I, I think some of them, you know, it's, it's complicated. I think some of them, I mean, I know for a fact that some of them understand this stuff because they email me. So, you know, <laughs> and they tell me that. So, so, so I know some of them do, I think most of them, even those who don't say it, not even privately, have some vague understanding of it. So, you know, they, they understand theoretically at a very high level of abstraction, they understand the limitations of their methods. And, you know, even in papers, there is always like a limitation section where they do, they make some ritual caveats, you know, about their results. But the thing is that, you know, when I say they understand at some level is that, and at a, high, a very high level of abstraction, that I don't think many of them truly appreciate the import of, of those limitations, because if they did, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't draw practical conclusions as readily as they do from, from those analysis that they do. And they would admit that they don't have that much of value to say, in, you know, as far as like practical advice to, for decision makers, but, but, you know, and, and I think one of the reasons they don't even to themselves don't admit that is because it's, uh, it's difficult to admit that even though that's your, uh, area of expertise, you know, you may not have any, you know, actionable, practical advice to give to decision makers. Right. And of course, if you, in addition, if you, if you admit this, then you have to, you know, you kind of lose your usefulness. And, and so, you know, those guys are, and I, again, I'm not even saying that for the most part, this is a conscious reasoning that they make, you know, in their head that say, oh, you know, if I admit this stuff, I won't be invited on television or right. to write, you know, op-eds in newspapers anymore. You know, I don't think it's, I mean, in some cases, maybe like this, but I think it's pretty rare. There's, there's, there's so much in the population. Yeah, they, they just they just wanted me to even to themselves, I think, because nobody wants to 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 think, you know, that they're that they have nothing of value to. Right. I think they do have potentially some things of value, not if they continue to, you know, not acknowledge the the what? limitations of their uh, method, but they they have no value as far as you know practical advice for decision makers. Right. 
Well, so so we want to, I think the, the incentive structure point is good and we want to get into that. But, but before we do, could you just give a couple concrete examples of where this methodology, like say in the Imperial College London papers, has made a prediction that's just turned out to be totally wrong, but the prediction has nonetheless guided yeah. policymaking. Like it'd be good to have we, a couple you know, we, we, we are humanities we, majors. So yeah, we, we're humanities, humanities majors who, who read more of this stuff than probably a lot of our listeners. So we want to try yeah. to bring it down to our to the masses. Give, give us a sense of the, of the failures of modeling given that capital. Well, so, so for instance, you know, in early, like in the beginning of the pandemic in March, 2020, at least the beginning of the pandemic in the West, you know, in the UK or France, we, we locked down pretty hard. And this was based on models that predicted that absent a lockdown, you would have, you know, basically incidents, that is the daily number of infections would continue to rise until we hit the herd immunity threshold at which once you start declining, but you know, you would only hit it at around like when about two thirds of the population has been infected. And you know, and by the time it's done, you know, because of something called overshoot, you would have like more than 90% of the population that would be infected in a matter of weeks. So like in three months later, more than 90% of the population would have been infected. And that means that because, you know, uh, a lot of those people would have needed to be hospitalized and hospital capacity is much more limited that, than, than this would have required, probably the, the I mean, certainly to, to a large extent, the fatality rate of the disease would have, would have shot up because hospitals would have been overloaded and they wouldn't have been able to treat people correctly. And so a lot of people would have died that wouldn't have needed to die, even if the same share of the uh, population had been infected. And was that, that was the, the logic between the, behind the, the and the curve, you know, arguments. But, you know, those models, they assumed that only, you know, only, well, first of all, they assumed that uh, government restriction, government mandated restrictions actually have a large effect on the epidemic, which I think now, I don't think it's a very plausible assumption. I'm not saying they have zero effect, but I don't think the data support the claim that they have a very large effect. Uh, and also they ignore various factors that can play a role, such as, you know, one, one thing I talked about early on was uh, voluntary behavior change, which is no kind of a, a common trope in this discussion, but it wasn't at the time. People, you know, when, when hospitalizations rise, you know, and death rise, people get scared. And so they reduce their, their amount of social activity. And even absent government mandated restriction, this, this reduced transmission. And so you incidence, you know, the number of infect, daily number of, of infections starts declining way before you reach this herd immunity threshold. And we've seen it as early as April, where, you know, in Sweden, they didn't do any, or, you know, they did very light government mandated restriction. There was no lockdown in the same sense as uh, there were in Western Europe, you know, in the rest of Western Europe. And yet, you know, there, you know, the, the incidence started to decline way before herd immunity was reached. So, you know, I'm not saying that it wouldn't have declined faster and earlier, a little bit earlier, a little bit faster, if they had used the yeah, more stringent restrictions. But evidently, those early models where you know you it continues to rise until you reach herd immunity were completely false. Like more recently, and so you know we we took those very strict measures, which were quite simply the the largest reduction of basic liberties of people since World War II in Europe. And it was premised on those extremely flawed projections, uh, you know, as Sweden showed as early as April and as many other places showed after that. But even after that, you know, so I guess you could say it was excusable, although in retrospect, I don't think that's true, even though at the time I supported lockdowns, but I strongly regret it now. But at least you could say at the time it was excusable because we didn't have this example of Sweden and then the, the other examples that, that came later, like Florida, you know, in the summer where... Mm. There was like limited restriction and, and, you know, it's still, again, incidents still fell long before the herd immunity threshold was reached. But, you know, even after we've had all those examples, they did, you know, they continued of those like moronic models that, that just completely ignored this, this stuff. And then they used the same model to assess the effect of, uh, so that's another example actually of a failure. After they did those lockdowns, you know, you could say, okay, at the time maybe it was excusable, because we didn't have all this data to look at their effectiveness. Then when we had this data, you know, because we had several months worth of data, they did those studies to look at the effect of those restrictions. And they found that those, those studies typically found that those restrictions had a very large effect. 
And that's, you know, you had those studies like the most famous one, which is still the most cited study on the, on the effect of lockdowns. In, it was a study on the effect of lockdowns in Western Europe mm-hmm. during the first wave, claimed that it saved 3 million people. But, but, you know, the way in which those studies work, when you look at how they work, they basically the, the conclusion is backed in the assumption because it's backed in the model that only uh, uh, government-mandated restrictions can, ha- can have an effect on transmission. So since transmission fell in all of those countries, of course, this, the study, the paper is going to, the model is going to find that uh, restriction had a huge effect. But that was clearly not the case because the same thing happened in Sweden where there was no lockdown. So, and, and you know, and then there was more example, there were more example later that showed the same thing, but they didn't stop using those models. They kept making the same, the same assumptions. And, you know, to this day, I mean, like there was this very recently in, in the UK, Imperial College released another model where they predicted that there would be, you know, at least 3,000 deaths per day at the peak of this wave, the Omicron wave. And, you know, that, that which translates into something like a million infections per day at the peak. And I have to admit that was wrong, you know, because I said at the time that they would be wrong by an order of magnitude. And yes, I admit that was wrong. It turns out that, in fact, they will only be wrong by a factor of five and not 10. So, but, you know, that's still, that's still ridiculous. <laughs> So, so I, I joke about this because this is the sort of thing that people will say, you know, haha, you know, you were not, you know, you weren't so right. You know, it wasn't an order of magnitude, it was just a factor of five. I'm like, okay, I mean, <laughs> but, you know, it's the, the difference at this time, at least the, the British government didn't listen to them and like didn't order a lockdown, even though they, they were saying that, you know, they, they should. Yeah. But, and, but that was a good thing. You know, it was a good thing, first of all, because ordering a lockdown would have been stupid, but also from a more like scientific perspective, because, it allowed us to to see that the models were flawed, but of course, you know they always they always put a way out into their paper. So in this case, they said, you know, absence, new restrictions, or voluntary behavioral changes. So they're going to say it's all down to the voluntary behavioral changes, which you know may be the case. But as I as I explained, like another thing I, I wrote for CSPI, there are other factors that could uh, result in false transmission beyond you know people's voluntary behavioral changes, such as population structure. So, you know, we don't know, but mm-hmm. in any case, their initial projection was completely wrong. So, so, so the dynamic you're talking about, I think, is, is of a kind of a sort of general trend in the places where research overlaps with policy. Where, so, you know, you, a model is always an approximation, a map of the world, and everybody sort of at simultaneously says, yes, we know that. We know that we're limiting assumptions, limiting assumptions, dramatically constrain what we can learn. And then also the model's conclusions are taken as gospel writ and descending from the model is seen as descending from the science. You wrote a great piece about really, I mean, about a particular COVID restrictions paper, really about the, the foibles of contemporary econometrics more generally, where you pointed out that basically like we've adopted all of these tools of causal inference and they seem to have given us back the certainty that we had in the 70s and 80s about like, how we, how we can know cause. And really, they don't do that at all. And when they were articulated, they were not supposed to do that at all. So I guess the question I want to ask is this dynamic of simultaneous epistemic humility combined with, with, with sorry, a stated epistemic humility combined with acted epistemic inhumility. Where else do you see it playing out in the sciences? So, you know, we talked about the replication crisis. I think this plays out in, in a, a whole host of spaces, in the climate debate, in debates about gender and sex, et cetera. Where else do you see this dynamic playing out? Yeah, I think, honestly, I think it's all over the place. In those, you know, there's some, I, I don't know, I know much less about, you know, the physical sciences. I expect that it's uh, not as uh, critical over there, although, you know, maybe on climate sciences. On climate science, I think, I don't think the models are as bad, actually. But I think that the, in the case of climate science, there is this constant conflation between the empirical claims and the normative claims. You know, so it's one thing to say that you know, under different scenarios, the the atmosphere, the the the, the average temperature of the Earth's atmosphere would change by that much, and you know, in another scenario would be you know. And I think I actually think that there, I think that as far as I can tell. Their, their models really are, it's much better than in epidemiology of infectious disease. Sure. But once you've said that, you know, it doesn't really say anything about what you should do. And this is an entirely different question, but people tend to forget. So, so that's a different thing, you know, but that's a different thing than what you were talking about, you know. So I think uh, it's important to distinguish those two things. There, there are cases like this where 
the empirical science is actually pretty good, you know, but then, you know, people conflate their empirical, empirical claims with normative claims. And then there is something much more radical, which is what you were talking about. And you see that a lot in the social sciences. I think in all of them, seriously, I mean, uh, you've mentioned just a few examples, but literally this is ubiquitous. Uh, it's ubiquitous in, equi- in economics, like the paper I discussed, you know, that you were referring to in the, the piece you were referring to, it, it was written by very, very competent econometricians. Those guys know a lot more about econometrics than I do. One of them is probably going to get the Nobel Prize in economics in a few years because of his work on, on economic theory. So, you know, there's no question that they know more about me, more, more about this stuff than me, but, you know, they were still wrong. I still think they're wrong. In fact, I'm going to write a reply to their reply, which is going to, you know, insist on this point. But anyway, and the problem is, this, so those are two different cases. You know, there's this case where, you know, the, the empirical science is, is pretty reliable, but people conflate their empirical claims with normative claims. And then I think the more radical case, which is ubiquitous to answer a question, I, re- I think it's everywhere, you know, to answer a question, it's just in every, at least in every social sense, I think it's ubiquitous. You have this sort of things where people have those very sophisticated methods because, you know, there has been a lot of progress in econometrics and like, you know, theory about causal inference. I'm not denying that this, this mm-hmm. progress is real and, and has in fact occurred. I'm, I'm questioning its practical significance because one thing that people don't understand, I think, you know, I mean, reflective scientists, reflective social scientists, which is not that many social scientists, but sure, certainly there are some. They know this, but most people don't, and even many, even most social scientists, I would argue, don't realize this. You, you have all those sophisticated methods to disentangle different causal factors from, from your data. But one thing people don't realize is that in order for those methods to, in order for you to be in a position to know that those methods are actually going to be reliable, you need to know a lot of things about the phenomena that you're studying that usually you would only know if you, were or if you already knew the answer to the question that you're trying to answer with those methods. So it's kind of like this vicious circle, you know, in order to know that those methods are reliable. So, you know, you study a certain social phenomenon, so say, and you have a bunch of sophisticated methods of statistical methods to disentangle, you know, causality in, in the data you have about the social phenomenon. But to be in a position to know that those methods are actually going to be reliable and give you a real uh, causal if estimates of the causal effects, you have to know a lot about the social phenomenon in question. And usually you have to know stuff that you would only know if you already knew, knew the, the answer to the question you're trying to answer with those methods. And, and so, you know, I'll give you an example, you know, from, from this very study that you referred to, you know, the study about the effect of virus non-pharmaceutical interventions in the U.S. during the first wave, including masking, you know, mask mandates. So, you know, you, one difficulty in studying this stuff is that, as I said before, uh, it's not just the government mandated restrictions that matter because people also voluntarily change their behavior. Now, the guys who wrote this paper, like I said, they're pretty smart and very good at what they do. And so they, they understood this. So they take, took this into account and they took into account the fact that people use information about the epidemics to change their behavior. And this has an effect on the epidemic itself, which in turn has an effect on their information and so they end their behavior, et cetera, et cetera. And, but the problem is that what information do people use? You know, in order to build a model to, start to, to study that takes that into account, you need to make some assumption about the information that people use. And so in this case, for instance, do you assume that people only, only use local information, that is information about the number of cases and the number of deaths in their states? Or do you assume, you know, it was about the U.S. again. Or do you assume that they also use information about the entire U.S.? You know? And you have to make a choice about this. But how do you know? You don't know. You know that's, if you knew this, you would already know the, the mechanics of the uh, epidemics and the, all the different factors played out. And so you would already know what you're trying to, what they're trying to assess, like the effect of the non-pharmaceutical interventions. So you have to make a choice. But as I show in this stuff, in the, the, the piece I wrote about this, Depending on what choice you make about this question, you're going to get different results. But how do you know which one is more legitimate than the other? No, they're all semi-arbitrary. You know, like you, there's no clear reason to prefer one version of the model to another, but they give different results. So, so you know, this is one case where it's not even that people are, are you know, cheating. Like it's not 
uh, they're not, you know, faking the fabricating data or anything like that. They're, they're making a perfectly reasonable choice to include, you know, one version of the, to use one version of the model rather than the other. But the truth is that there is no better version of the model. So if, if different version of the model that are equally reasonable based on what we know, which usually is not a lot, otherwise you wouldn't be studying the stuff in the first place, are equally reasonable, then you don't, and then they give different results. Then you you have no ground to prefer you know to to prefer one to the other to draw a conclusion from the results you know because they're different depending on which version of the right. model. That's just one example about you know you need to make assumptions. Uh, you know, in order to use those sophisticated methods we were talking about before, you need to make you need to make assumptions about the causal process behind the phenomenon that you're studying, and usually you don't know the answer to those questions. You have no good reason to prefer certain assumptions to whether and this can affect the results. And it's even more perverse than that because there is there are the assumptions you make about the, the model you use, you know, to build your model. But you also have to make similarly semi-arbitrary choices about the data. Because most people think of the data as something that is given to the researcher. You know, the researcher gets the data and then he uses, you know, his magic on this, you know, those sophisticated statistical methods, and he gives you he, draw, he draws conclusions about causal, you know, the different causal factors and the causal effects of different factors from that. But actually, the data is constructed. You have to make choices when you build your data set. So in this case, for instance, to give you know, another example for, from the same study, there were some states where there, were, there was a, a statewide mass mandate. And, but there were some, in some of those states, the mask mandate was unconditional. You had, you know, in any public space, you had to wear a mask or you were fine, in theory at least. And in some other states, it was a conditional mask mandate. That is that you were only required to mask in public spaces in cases where you were not able to socially distance. Mm-hmm. So what do you do when you code the, that, those data? Do you assume that those are the same category of mask mandate or do you create two different types of mask mandate? Or do you say that in the second case, there is no mass mandate? Similarly, you know, there are some states like Florida where there was no statewide mass mandate, but in most big cities where most of the cases are, you know, the counties or the cities themselves, mm-hmm. the municipalities themselves had mass mandates, at least until September when DeSantis, you know, prevented local authorities from, from having mandates. Do you say that they have a mandate in the data when you con- when you construct the data set? Do you say they have a mandate? Or you don't? Yeah. You know, those are the type of question where you don't have any, there is no clearly right answer. You know, they're, they're all reasonable. You can make different but equally right. reasonable choices here, but it's going to affect the results. And those are just two examples. But what you need to understand is that for any study on this stuff and on any other stuff, it's not just about COVID, as you were saying, it's like yeah. in other, many other questions in social sciences. You have to make literally hundreds and hundreds of semi-arbitrary decisions like right. this, and they can affect the results. And, and so I think, well, yeah, go ahead. I, I, no, so I, I, I think there's something interesting here, which is, so, so yes, every, there's, all these studies are saturated with arbitrary assumptions. For there's a lot of what are called researcher degrees of freedom. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, now, it seems to me that the part of what you were getting at to start is that there's not really any kind of like informational market mechanism that punishes scientists and scientific modelers for getting things wrong and, and in fact it rewards them right right like like what happened it's essentially like a, instead of a market it's like government just sort of will reward you for these models that rationalize the policy that makes it seem like the government's doing something that they're already kind of leaning towards anyway and there's and because it's, it's not it's, like it's, a kind of prediction market there's no there's no punishment and thus no kind of mechanism through sort of, you know, decentralized, spontaneous Hayekian processes for people to kind of figure out through trial and error what assumptions are good and what aren't, because people aren't actually rewarded for getting things right. You know, could you talk more about that? It seems like it seems like a lot of what you're describing could be fixed if there were actually and incentive incentives baked in for getting things right or getting things wrong. So I, I'm more pessimistic. So that's that's an interesting question. I mean, first of all, I want to say it's not just the it's not just government that you know rewards yeah. this kind of behavior. It's also the 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 academic field themselves. So you know, one thing I like to say one one way to think about this, you know, if you write a paper in any field, 
there is a kind of script for different kinds of papers. So you know, if you write a if you write a paper on on the the effect of non pharmaceutical interventions on on COVID nineteen, you know, on the the COVID nineteen pandemic, there are like a, a, a small number of scripts that describe you know the different steps you have to go through to do your study, and if you just follow the script then you, you're going to be able to publish your stuff in a good paper. And this will be good for your career, independently of what government thinks, you know, of whether you, you, know, you justify the stuff that the government has been doing or not. Which, you know, usually, well, not at least very often they do, but that, that's kind of irrelevant here. As long as you follow the script, you're going to be able to publish your stuff, and that's going to be good for your career. Now, the problem is that very often this script, it's not a truth conducive script, you know. Like, you know, the guys that was whose paper I discussed in that piece that Charles was referring to earlier, they definitely followed the script. You know, in fact, it, it's one of the most sophisticated papers on the question. But I still think their conclusions are totally unreliable. But, they, they, but it doesn't matter. You know, they followed the script, so they were able to publish. Now, to your question, the reason why I'm more pessimistic than you is that I don't think it's very easy, in most cases, to actually show that someone was wrong, you know, in the, in the robust sense that would be necessary for this kind of like, for, to, to change the incentive structure here, to, to make, you know, to, uh, for, the, for a different incentive structure to improve the, the quality of the science. Because, you know, and this is something that they've been doing a lot, you know, during the pandemic, you know, those uh, epidemiologists who, who use those models, is that those models are extremely flexible. And so you can all, you know, when your projections turn out to be completely wrong, you can always pin that scenario uncertainty. I mean, you know, when you, when you make a projection with those models, you have to make certain assumptions about how people are going to behave, how the value of different parameters are difficult to measure, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the effect of the different restrictions, you know, all sorts of things. And so even, you know, but those models are pretty flexible. So even if in fact the models the model doesn't correspond at all to the actual causal process, which I think is the case with those models that they're using in, in, uh, to make those projections uh, about the, the pandemic. Even if it has nothing to do with the actual causal process, they're so flexible, then there is always a way of picking the right combination of, of parameters, of values for the parameters, right. so that it will, it will reproduce the actual data, what happened later. So, you know, even if those are not the parameters that they had used initially, after, you know, you look back on the difference between their projections and the actual data, and you see that it was completely off, like what happened in England, in the UK just now, they can always go back and say, okay, yeah, sure, but that, the problem is not the model. We, our model was fine, you know? What happened is that we got the scenario wrong. You know, we assumed that certain parameters had this value, and it turned out that they had this other value. And if you use this, those other values for those parameters, you will you will be able to get the the actual trajectory of cases. And, right. And so so you know that's so what I mean is that it's not. And you know there are arguments to to show that no no actually it's not just scenario uncertainty. It's your model itself that is crap. Right. But it's not something that you can prove, you know, like it's not as simple as just saying that, you know, the projections was, the projection was completely off. So right. the model gets a bit, you know, it's not something that you can, you can prove, you know, because again, to, to prove it, you don't really have to, to know what's the underlying causal process. That's what you're trying to find out. Right. So, so it seems like there's sort of a deeper irony here, which is that a lot of the, the argument for science as a, as an epistemic discipline as and kind of as an epistemic improvement on other forms of knowledge is that it's falsifiable, right? You can, falsification is this key criterion. You can say, ah, well, you know, this model predicted X, but X didn't happen. So that's evidence against the model back to the drawing board, do more experiments. It seems like here with epidemiology and potentially with a lot more fields of science in particular social science, what you're saying, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like what you're saying is it's actually the way they set it up. It's not really falsifiable. They can say, well, this didn't prove us wrong. This just proved that like X, Y, or Z little parameter was off. So, you know, it, it may be that they're, they're right that like this isn't falsifiable, but that's precisely the problem that like once science gets into this territory where it's very difficult to falsify a theory, it, it's getting away from kind of the 
foundation that's supposed to give science this like extra epistemic claim to authority in the first place. What do you make of that? Yeah, so that's that's very interesting because actually I'm again I'm more radical than you. I, I don't think that's I, I actually wrote to if people are interested, I wrote a blog post about this where I, I explain why most philosophers of science don't think that falsif falsificationism is true. So you know the idea that what demarcates right. science from non-science is that science is falsifiable. I think it's an untenable uh, idea. And actually, this is a case in point, you know, but I think that yeah. all of science is literally like that. You know, it's it's really not, it's just not the case. You know, if you're trying to distinguish science from not science using the, the falsification criteria, falsification, yeah, falsifiability criterion, uh, you're going to get into all sorts of trouble. It just won't work. You know? uh, so, you know, pe people can read that if they're interested. And this is, a, you know, so my point is that I don't think the problem is so much that their prediction are unfalsifiable. It's that mm. because this is inevitable, you know, in, in a strong sense, you know, it's always unfalsifiable, you know, there are, well, it's a complicated discussion, but let's just, I will, I will just leave it at that and people can read the blog post on this if, if they want to. But going back to, you know, what you were saying, so I don't think that the problem per se is that what they're doing is, is unfalsifiable because I think this is inevitable. So I can't blame mm. them for doing something that I think mm. is inevitable. I think the problem is that it's not falsifiable, and yet they talk as if it were, and as if their conclusions were practically relevant. Where, where you know, where you, as if you could derive, you know, as if it could actually guide policy in a useful way. And and I don't think this is the case, but that's what's something they won't admit, you know. So so you know, in at the beginning of the at the beginning of the podcast, you and Charles were having this discussion. And Charles used an expression, I think it was Charles, used an expression that I thought was interesting. It was like, you know, how do we, one of the questions he asked was like, how do we get away from the very flawed way in which science is currently done to get closer to this ideal where science True is, science. Kind of, I yeah. think he used the expression rationalistic or something like that, you know, where, you know, we kind of do away with all those biases, et cetera. And, and you know, I'm more radical because I think that you can't. It's just like, you know, there's no ideal science where you can, you know, what I just talked about before, all those decisions you have to make about the model and about the data when you when you study this kind of stuff. Like I said, those are those are inevitable choices that you have to make. There are hundreds of them anytime you, you study any phenomenon. And it's not as if, I mean, very often, don't get me wrong, very often people do make choices, uh, methodological choices that make no sense. In fact, many of them, they just commit downright fraud, you know? So I don't want to get all scientists off the hook. But my point, you know, the real black pill is that even when they don't, even when scientists do everything right, in a way, you know, they don't, they don't make, they, they make only sensible methodological choices. They make only sensible choice when they construct their data sets. The, the, the reality is that they still have to make hundreds of semi-arbitrary choices. They could have gone another way. It would have been equally reasonable, but the results might have been completely different. So, you know, that's where I'm pretty radical about this stuff is that I don't think this ideal science exists. You know, it just, this is inevitable. And the important thing is to realize those cases where these researchers' degrees of freedom, you know, which is the relevant expression here, as Charles was saying before, is such that it can totally, it makes the, the results are totally sensitive on which of those equally reasonable, but very different methodological choices you make when you put together a model, when you put together a data set. And those cases where, sure, those you still have to make all those semi-arbitrary choices, but it doesn't actually meaningfully affect the results. So that's the important thing. You have to, you have to admit, you have to understand and, and properly recognize that this is always going to be the case in any social science study, you're going to have to make hundreds of semi-arbitrary choices, which may have affect the results. Is that there are some cases where the results are, I think they're pretty rare actually. So again, you know, the, I'm not a, an optimist here, but you know, there are probably some cases where which choices you end up making don't actually meaningfully affect the results, but in most cases they are going to meaningfully affect the results. And so, you know, there is no there is no fix here. There is, I mean, certainly there are some things we can fix. Like I said, you know, you can, I'm not saying that the open science movement, you know, people publishing their code and data is certainly something, it, it improves things, you know, I'm not denying that it improves things. But even if, if everyone publishes, 
of the Sorry, what's that? It's the it's an imperfect approximation because you can't ever get to an ideal per se. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. not only you can't ever get to an ideal, you know, that's kind of a trivial point. If if you just put like this, my, my point is much more radical. I think that you will always be very far from from this ideal. And so it's important to realize that because if you don't realize this, then science can and in, indeed it does, you know, often becomes a tool, you know, for people to uh, launder their political and ideological preferences. Yeah. And, and, and then, you know, they use, they use science to launder them into something that's just, you know, oh, no, that's, I'm just, oh, that's what, what the guys, you know, published this study that I uh, criticized, you know, but non-pharmaceutical intervention, they wrote a reply to me and they were like, you know, it, it's an interesting critique, although it's overly ideological. And I'm like, no, they're just full of shit. You know, I'm just being honest. Unlike them, you know. <laughs> uh, so let me um, let me let me ask sort of a, a a practical question. I think we'll go to concluding thoughts after that. But for our listeners, you know, I I, I think the big takeaway from this radical critique, you know, every day you read the newspaper, you read social media, you read whatever, you're attacked with dozens of appeals to scientific authority, um, saying such and such study says such and such, uh, such and such scientific individual said such and such. How? Given your account of how science works, how should I, as an average consumer of news and politics, engage with that kind of appeal? How should I understand that rhetoric? How should I interpret it? What kind of trust should I put in? How do I respond to it? Yeah, that's, that's a good and difficult question. I'm, I'm not sure I have a very good answer to it because I think the truth of the, you know, really, ideally, you'd want people, like ideally science journalists, to, you know, w- w- one thing they could do is like, seek out uh, a more diverse range of, of researchers on any topic they discuss, because, you know, there's always this, as uh, I don't know if it's you or Aaron who mentioned that earlier, there is a huge selection, you know, in which scientists, you know, are, are invited to publish their views in, in big newspapers, that sort of thing. And, you know, this, se- this selection is not ideologically neutral on, on most uh, issues. So they can seek out a more diverse range of, of perspective from researchers themselves. But the the problem with this is that you also have a lot of cranks, you know, so you don't want to, you know, if, if you just like, if you make it too diverse in a way, you're going to end up like putting on the, at the same level, you know, total cranks, you know, even though they're cranks with PhDs and like research positions, it doesn't matter, they're still cranks. I mean, of course, there are, right now there's already a lot of cranks who are invited in, you know, they're very respectable cranks, but they're, you know, Neil Ferguson, I think is a crank, but is is invited all the time, you know, to give his opinion on the pandemic, but is, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, so, but the point is that, you know, there are also people who disagree with Neil Ferguson who are total cranks too, just, you know, they have a different view, but so, so that's not ideal, you know, you can't just, I, I think, you know, you need to have, I think the only, but I don't think that's a realistic hope, but I think the only way we could improve this, you know, the, the coverage of, of the scientific literature for the general public, that we need journalists that read that that you know that inform themselves on, on the on the methods that those you know to understand better the methods and their limitation because when they do they can ask those sci- scientists you know difficult questions about this you know and, and you'll you'll see that any scientist if you ask them those questions they will they will concede a lot of stuff you know like they they will you know they will be much more if they see that that you understand this at least at the, you know, I don't think you need to be a I think people greatly overestimate how important it is to be, to be an expert, you know, to, to know statistics and those methods very well, you know, to know the, the most sophisticated version. I think even if, if journalists had a basic understanding of statistics and of causal inference, it would greatly improve things because this is in, mo- in, in more often than not, this is all you need, you know, to point out, to see, and then point out the limitations of some of those studies. And so, but, you know, like I said, I, I think this, ideally this is how, we could make things better, but in practice, I don't think you're ever going to have, you know, there, there are some journalists who were basically this, you know, I mean, I think you're like this. I think there are a bunch of others like Robert Verbergen. I, I think he wrote, he writes various stuff, good stuff, you know, for the National Review, which I, I think just people at the Manhattan Institute. That's where we, <laughs> the, 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 that's our next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, thank you. Know. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, so I'm not saying it's impossible. You know, there are some, there are such journals. But what I think is not very realistic is is that there will be a critical mass of them, you know, enough, big enough that it will substantially improve the coverage of this kind of issues in, in the in the media. But you know, I'm, I'm afraid that beyond that, I, I don't have any 
I'm not sure I have anything more, you know, of substance to say in, in answer to your question. So that's maybe it's kind of disappointing, but I guess <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we want to sort of offer some closing thoughts, Aaron, what did you come away with? Well, the, the, the flippant, but not entirely inaccurate answer is that I already thought follow the science was stupid. And now I'm questioning whether it's even coherent and whether science itself even exists or has any kind of meaningful epistemic claim over its competitors. But, but no, more seriously, like, I think what this <laughs> underscores is that we really have created a very scientistic culture that is just totally ignorant of all of the problems that Philip is talking about. And yeah, you know, I look, Philip, you obviously do this, these analyses yourself. And so built into your own work is the assumption that it is possible to make a kind of epistemic progress and it is possible to get to better or more true answers than others, you know, but it's, but it seems like that recognition needs to be tempered by an appreciation for just how messy, contingent, and revisable and provisional every scientific claim really is. And it seems to me that that fully internalizing that fact would entail, like, not just on the COVID policy, but on everything, like a very, very radical critique of the way our society runs and thinks. And it does make one wonder, I have to tell you, it makes me wonder, like, what have, what do I accept as scientific fact that isn't true? I mean, there are a lot of things, you know, where you wonder, huh, what if it's just all a lie? I don't know. That's, that's where I am right now, Charles. <laughs> okay. Well, we've ruined Aaron. That's fine. <laughs> I mean, I think, so, you know, I work, I work sort of as, as Philippe alluded to, I work uh, frequently reporting on reading econometric papers, papers in social science, and my area of particular interest is criminal justice. And that is a space that is fraught with politics, shall we say. There are a few papers that you read in that domain that don't begin with the sort of like standard disclaimer that cops are racist and the police abolition is desirable. This is just like par for the course. And, you know, I think I think part of what this discussion has given us today is science works in, you know, what, what, what Philippe alluded to is this sort of magical process where you like take your data and you apply the appropriate system methods and you get truth out of the other end. And then the truth is sort of uncontestable, is perceived as uncontestable in the public sphere. But obviously, because of the diversity of choices that you can make, because a, a, a because of selection to the level of the study, because uh, researchers can make choices consciously or unconsciously to reach conclusions they would or would not like to reach. And then B, because of selection to the level of the dissemination of knowledge, because our, our public discourse prefers certainty, and so we're likely to select people who make claims certainty over people who have more accurate claims. I think that there is a, there, there's a lot of space created for ambiguity in the process or the, the 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 elision of ambiguity in the process. And in that space, like politics is possible. You know, I said I said at the start of the conversation I was interested in basically the bad incentives for science and the way in which people keep doing dumb things and why they keep doing them. And I think, you know, part of that I've taken away is that it's not so much that there are things intrinsic to the scientific establishment that exists as the scientific establishment is believed by the general public and by policymakers to be far more immune to social pressures than it actually is, both coincidentally, incidentally to the status quo, but also essentially that it will always be a thing that exists in the context of society. And so we should always be sort of bring to bear on it the same skepticism to answer my own question Philippe earlier, bring to bear on it the same skepticism that we bring to bear on any pronounced and offered by anybody in any position at any time whatsoever. Probably not to be nihilists, but you know, I, I, I think if listeners want to leave the conversation with one thing, it's it's sort of a a comfort not a, a comfort with skepticism with pronouncements that are backed purely by science says um, they didn't have it already. Why don't we why don't we do a little recommendation? Philippe, we'll uh, we'll get to you if you want to plug yourself or things that you like. But we'll start with us, Aaron. Do you have anything to recommend to our listeners this week? Yeah, I had this thought the other day that. You know, to, to, in keeping with my kind of nature nurture theme about the pandemic, it can be interesting to go back and read Machiavelli's The Prince through the lens of the pandemic, 
and to kind of apply his insights to policymakers struggling with COVID. And and I and I'm thinking in particular here of his discussion of Fortuna and how you know policymakers kind of can can he has this famous line about like you know you can seize fortune and almost like he says like beat her like a woman it's it's not very politically correct but there's also this idea in it that that fortuna you know can only be controlled to some extent and it's ultimately you know outside of our control and 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 at some point you know he kind of thinks the difference between a good statesman and a bad statesman is how they respond to chance and contingency. This is obviously oversimplifying, but it seems to me that if you go back and read those passages and think about them in the context of COVID, it it provides a lot of food for thought. And especially, I think part part of what Machiavelli gets at is that this is really, you know, it's more of an art than a science, kind of having prudence and judgment in these sorts of contingencies. And it seems like the kind of follow the science mentality that we've just spent the past hour completely destroying among its many faults. One of them is that it is an obstacle to that kind of measured prudence and to that kind of measured appreciation for contingency and chance. Charles? Yeah. So a couple of years ago, I went down a rabbit hole reading about dissenting viewpoints on the science of antidepressants and uh, the treatment of depression more generally. The most accessible book that I read was Robert Whitaker's Anatomy of an Epidemic. It's a 2010 book in which Whitaker advances both through robust evidence, also through anecdotal evidence, the thesis that uh, the widespread use of antidepressants is in fact contributing to the surge in mental illness as opposed to treating it. I'm not sure I agree with his conclusions, but A, I recommend the book A as a controversial and interesting thesis that engages well with the science as a good example of what we're talking about today. And B, because, you know, I think I think it does a great job summarizing the sort of broader dispute over antidepressants as a great example of a highly socially salient scientific advancement, the use of which is much more controversial, the efficacy of which is much more controversial in literature than sort of popular representation, not necessarily by scientists themselves, but by peddlers of the therapeutic mindset would have you believe. So it's 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 worth consuming, albeit skeptically, uh, to tie back to my original point. Philippe, do you want to plug your own work? Are there adjacent recommendations you'd like to make to our audience? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I guess if people want to see a few examples of the the sort of thing, you know, practical cases, practical examples of, of the sort of things I was talking about, they can they can check my blog on, on CSPI, and they will have you know some of those examples. And then to going back to what I was saying, like when you asked me, you know, how we could improve like the coverage of this stuff in the media, I said that you know the, the ideally people learn enough about the the methods, you know, social scientists used to to study study the, the various phenomena of, of interest. I, I think, you know, if people want to do this, like I said, you know, I don't think you need to become like, you know, ultra sophisticated about this stuff before you can have huge returns. I think like just learning the basics already has, it's a great, you know, there's, there's a great return on the investment in terms of your comprehension of the issues. And so the, there's a, there are some really good books out there that can help with this and are very accessible, I think. And like the uh, one that that was just published that I think I haven't read it yet, but I've looked at the like earlier version were put on the internet before it was published. And I, I haven't read the whole thing, but I've read that several, several passages. And I, I think it's going to be, I think it's great. It's called The Effect by Nick Huntington Plain. And so I, I would encourage people who want to uh, get a better understanding of this stuff to, to make the investments of first buying the book and then reading it, because again, it's, it's a great, I think it's a great way of, of, you know, just reading this book will make you much better able to understand all this stuff. And then you can look at these studies with a more critical eye. Another good book uh, that is similar to this one was published uh, last year, I think, is The Causal Inference Mixtape by Scott That's Cunningham. Scott Cunningham's book, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, so you can buy either of those books and I can guarantee you that it will help you a lot to to look at this stuff like with a more critical and better informed eye. And yeah, that, that would be my recommendation. Well, thank awesome. you. And thank you, Philippe, for joining us today. Right. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, 
it's impossible to access truth through the scientific method or otherwise. So we'll be unable to interpret them. But nonetheless, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. I think that's all the time that we have. So until next time, I'm Charles Van Lehman. I'm Aaron Sibarium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. I hope you'll join us again. Thank you.